Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Meow Ludo Meow Meow talks about biohacking longevity. But first up, here's the news. Free rides for killer cars. Who decides who lives or dies on the roads? No government has legislated the behaviour of autonomous cars. Most car makers favour running down pedestrians to save the people who pay them for the cars. But is that fair? Can science help us decide? The biggest advantage of cars, trucks and buses that drive themselves is the opportunity to reduce the number of people killed on the roads by reducing the number of traffic accidents. Studies suggest that human error causes 90% of accidents, so automated cars should eliminate this factor. Suppose a driverless car must either hit pedestrians or swerve in such a way that it crashes and harms its passenger. What should it be instructed to do? A study co-authored by researchers at MIT asked Americans only to respond to six online studies to find out what people think. In the first study, three quarters of people thought it was more moral for the autonomous vehicles to sacrifice one passenger than to kill 10 pedestrians. When they were later asked what was the most moral way to program the cars, they overwhelmingly expressed a utilitarian preference to save as many people as possible. Some people worried that not all cars would be programmed this way, and they'd instead be instructed to save the passenger at the expense of the pedestrians. In the second study, the people were asked about the scenarios where the numbers of pedestrians varied anywhere from 1 to 100. People didn't think that the car should sacrifice one passenger for one pedestrian, but the more pedestrians in the equation, the more people thought the passenger should be sacrificed to save them. They found that even when people were asked to imagine themselves or a member of their family as the one passenger, most stuck with their original moral choice. People were then asked to rate on a scale of 1 to 100 how likely they'd be to buy cars that were programmed to minimise the number of people killed, and would therefore, under these circumstances, sacrifice themselves or a family member as passengers, versus how likely they would be to buy a car programmed to protect the passenger at all costs, even when it means killing 20 people. Most people said that they'd choose a car programmed to protect them at all costs over the car that would save the greatest number of people. In the fourth study, participants were given 100 points to allocate for three values between different types of algorithms. Once for how moral the algorithms were, once to show how comfortable they were for other cars to be programmed that way, and once for how likely they would be to buy a car programmed that way. For one of the algorithms, the car would always swerve when it was about to run over people on the road in three different situations. When it swerved into a pedestrian to save 10 people, when it killed its own passenger to save 10 people, when it swerved into a pedestrian to save just one other pedestrian. 
The algorithm that swerved into the 1 to save 10 was always given lots of points. And the algorithm that swerved into 1 to save 1 always received few points. The algorithm that would kill its passenger to save 10 presented a hybrid profile. It received high marks for morality and was considered a good algorithm for other people to have. But in terms of whether people would buy that car for themselves, it rated significantly fewer points. It appears that people praise utilitarian, self-sacrificing robot cars and welcome them on the road without actually wanting to buy one for themselves. As the economists would say, everyone wanted a free ride. In the fifth study, people were asked what they thought of legislation enforcing which algorithms guide the behaviour of the cars. Participants considered scenarios in which either a human driver or a control algorithm had an opportunity to self-sacrifice in order to save one or ten pedestrians. People allocated a high morality to the self-sacrifice, whether it was a human driver or an algorithm. But when asked whether they would agree to see such moral sacrifices legally enforced, their agreement was higher for algorithms than for human drivers, but the average agreement was low. Agreement was highest where the algorithm would save ten lives. Finally, in study six, people were asked about how likely they would be to buy a car that followed government-legislated programming. Participants were presented with scenarios in which they were either riding alone, with an unspecified family member, or with their child. As in the previous studies, the scenarios depicted a situation in which the algorithm that controlled the car could sacrifice the passengers to minimise casualties on the road. People were reluctant to accept government regulation of cars that killed the passenger to save other people. Even in the most favourable condition, where they were only imagining themselves being sacrificed to save 10 pedestrians, people gave the idea that it was appropriate for the government to regulate this sacrifice only 36 to 48 out of 100. Finally, and importantly, participants were vastly less likely to consider buying an autonomous car with such regulation than without. The median expressed likelihood of purchasing an unregulated self-driving car was 59, compared to 21 for purchasing a regulated car. The authors warn that although this is a huge gap from a statistical perspective, it must be understood that this is a new issue for the public and people may change their minds. Three groups may be able to decide how driverless cars handle who to kill. The people who buy the cars, the corporations that must program the cars in the first place, and the government which may regulate the kind of programming the manufacturers can offer and consumers can choose from. People want other people's cars to be programmed to sacrifice passengers to protect others, and their own cars to be programmed to protect them at all costs. If you allow the market to offer both self-sacrificing and other sacrificing cars, then people would buy the car that protects them while wishing everybody else did the opposite. If the government regulates cars to sacrifice the passenger over the pedestrians, then people will be unhappy with the government and reluctant to buy the cars. And maybe more people would die from human drivers. If the government regulates cars to protect the passenger at all costs, people will be unhappy with the government, scared of other cars, but happy to buy the cars. If the manufacturer offers a choice of algorithms, either at the factory or selectable in the car, will the owner of the car be more liable for the behaviour of the car in an accident? If the manufacturer just makes the cars to protect the passenger at all costs, should the owner be solely responsible for an accident or does the manufacturer take all or some of the responsibility? 
If there were, say, sensors on the streets outside of places with many pedestrians, such as schools and parks, then that information could be made available to the cars. Really, that could be happening with human drivers. It's not as if we don't already have the cameras everywhere. Mercedes-Benz make the argument that you should only save the person you know you can save. The one in the car. Outside the car, there's not enough information to be sure of saving other people if you sacrifice the passenger. They say that's okay because they claim that self-driving cars are safer than human-driven cars, so there'll be fewer accidents and fewer deaths from people using them. This is yet to be proved. It sounds a little self-serving. German car manufacturer Audi says that they would take out insurance to cover the liability for whoever is killed in an accident involving their driverless car, due for sale in 2017. Volvo say they'll do the same in 2020. The US Transportation Department has released guidelines for driverless cars. The guidelines state, algorithms for resolving these conflict situations should be developed transparently using input from federal and state regulators, drivers, passengers, and vulnerable road users. In September 2016, ride-sharing service Uber launched a small fleet of driverless cars onto the streets of Pittsburgh. Also in 2016, South Perth in Western Australia started a three-month trial of a driverless shuttle bus. It can drive safely without anyone behind the wheel, but only in a few environments. The bus will travel on a pre-programmed route on the foreshore, but it has the ability to detect other vehicles and read traffic lights. The robot shuttle bus was imported from France by the Western Australia Royal Automobile Club. It can carry 11 passengers and travel at up to 45 kilometers per hour, although its average speed will be 25 kilometers per hour. The South Australian government has passed legislation to allow trials of self-driving vehicles on its roads. Volvo trialed its driverless XC90 cars on the roads of Adelaide in 2015. I think a large part of the dilemma is that sacrificing yourself for the greater good is considered a heroic act. This means that while we consider it to be the more moral thing to do, we don't expect most members of society to be heroic. It's applauded, but it's no shame if you don't do it. On the other hand, it's endlessly celebrated in stories where heroes are held up as role models. We expect the people with agency to be responsible for accidental deaths they cause. But in this case, it's a chain of people that are responsible. There's also a matter of inequality between the wealthy people riding in the robot cars and the poor pedestrians getting mown down. And that most of us are pedestrians more often than we're passengers in a car. So what do you think? Would you feel safe on roads where people ride in expensive cars driven by robot chauffeurs that are programmed to run you over if it might save the passenger? Or will robots cause more accidental deaths? Who should decide what cars do on the roads and who is responsible for their behaviour? The study was titled The Social Dilemma of Autonomous Vehicles, co-authored by researchers from the Economics Department of the University of Toulouse, the Psychology Department of the University of Oregon and the Media Lab at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It was published in the journal Science. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. 
and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Would you like to be healthier for longer? October was Longevity Month. Meow Ludo Meow Meow is the co-founder of the biofoundry of the Sydney Biohackers. He gave a talk about the companies that are working to offer products that would genuinely slow down or reverse ageing. From a biohacker perspective. Australian, woman in science, Nobel Prize winner. This is Elizabeth Blackburn. She discovered the cause of ageing, of cellular ageing. She dedicated her entire life to science. She never got married or had children because she felt that that would impact her ability to study. And we're glad that she did because she discovered telomerase. So every time the cell divides, it's going to get shorter. And after enough times of getting shorter, it won't, um, you'll start hitting your, actually, your, your genetic information rather than this kind of nonsense that's added on the end as a spacer. And at about 25 years of age, this switches off and every division of your cells, the DNA is getting shorter. So we know this is correlated to aging. So there's this enzyme that sticks all this stuff on the end and people have problems with it age quicker. We know that if we put things in that reactivate this, you live longer. So it's, it's one, one cause of aging, but it's probably the biggest one that we know of so far. Now, from a molecular bio perspective, because this, this is what I study, um, so DNA has a direction and because one of them is facing, one of the, the strands, go in the five prime to three prime, prime direction, and then the other one goes three prime to five prime. So they're, they're on opposite ways to each other. This is the reason why this problem happens in the first place, and we have linear DNA. So it's, it's not something we can solve. The only way we can do it is by reactivating this enzyme. BioVivas. So this is probably the most famous life extension company around at the moment. It's Elizabeth Parrish. She traveled to Colombia, and she took a, a paper done by a Spanish group and then administered the treatment that they gave to mice to herself. She is a technologist, not a scientist. I think this is really important. I think that, tech, that at this stage, life extension should be in the hands of technologists. And the reason is there are no assumptions or hypotheses attached to her findings because she, she listed a patent. She said, I'm a technologist and an entrepreneur and we achieved the intended results, which is that when she administered this drug to herself, her telomeres expanded in the circulating cells in her body and reduced her biological age by 20 years if you were to compare the telomeres to somebody else. So she was 44 and now she has the same telomeres that a 24-year-old has. And this is happening. This happened earlier this year, late last year. Okay, so I'll just summarise it quickly. She's got two parts to it, so it's not just telomerase. It's also, she targets myostatin inhibition, which affects muscle. So that was done in conjunction with George Church, who's a big proponent of this. He's kind of one of those guys who's got his fingers in all the pies. So yeah, she got a 9% extension of telomeres. The way that it works is really interesting. So it's adeno-associated virus mediated. This basically means that it sits inside your cells and continually expresses it. So you're only ex ever expected to need to have one to two treatments of this in your lifetime. Maybe if you extend it for a really long time, you'll need it again. There's been a few little problems because uh, some of the advisors have actually withdrawn their support because they don't agree with her using herself as a guinea pig. There's a long tradition of scientists using themselves as guinea pigs and we've got a lot of technology because of it. So that, that's, that's one interesting thing. And, and you can skirt a lot of ethical concerns. It was still illegal for her to give that to herself in America and that's why she went to Colombia. So even if you want to, you're still not legally allowed to do it. Kind of like suicide or something like that, even though you might be in the right frame of mind, you're not allowed to. Okay, so they also just partnered with a Russian company. This is important because they put their 
company on the blockchain, which means that everyone can participate meaningfully by contributing research and funding without having to have $20,000 to invest in buying shares or anything like that. You can just directly fund the company. And if you're interested, that you can, if you own more than 50% share of the blockchain or you get the um, consent of 50% of people, you can do paid work for them in a way that you think is important. So you only need to convince the other people in the blockchain that what you're doing is important and you can get funding, which is awesome. Combining two amazing things. And they have a kick-ass advisory board. They've got George Church, Aubrey de Grey. So there's some like, pretty big heavyweights on BioViva's side. Okay, so we're going to skip along to Tillersite. Tillersite are basically a legit version of BioViva. Uh. <laughs> So they said, no, no, we're not going to fly everyone to Colombia and get them to go through the, the treatment. We're going to go for FDA approval. So what they're doing at the moment is trying to run this out of America with the blessing of the government. They started in 2015. They have enough money to get through to stage two trials. They're currently not even in phase zero trials, which is on animals. So they said the first thing the FDA is probably going to request is more testing on dogs or mice, and I spent ages trying to find out information, but it looks like they got a ton of money, they got a big group together, and then they just stopped. And it looks like there's a, there's a few other companies I didn't even mention in this talk that are in the same kind of boat. They're like, we want to do something with life extension, and they just hit a roadblock and they don't do anything else. But they did partner with... So also, they do have one person on the team that has experience using this type of therapy, the AAV mediated gene therapy, to take them all the way through to market. So they do have people on there which are pretty good. So this is, this is probably the most influential paper I've ever found, which is a study done by a Spanish group, CNIO. They were able to use telomerase gene therapy treatment on adult and old mice, which was one and two years respectively, and then give them this uh, gene treatment and they were able to increase the lifespan 24 and 13% respectively. So that, that, that's huge. If we think, if, average, if we can get life, uh, our average lifespan to 100, that's 125 years. That's like absolutely massive potentially. This group collaborates with Telesite, so they're, they're pushing forward for the, the FDA approval. And the thing that I was always worried about is telomerase is actually associated with cancer. So cancerous cells have replicative immortality because their telomeres don't shorten. So this is a big concern. It's like, oh, you know what? You might get life extension. You, you might be able to like biologically live forever, but the cancer is going to kill you from getting any of these treatments. In this paper, that was, from a biological perspective, I was thinking this would be a problem. When they administered this treatment, the, they had exactly the same levels of cancer as their litter mates. Maybe even a little bit less, but it wasn't significant. Maria A. Blasco is actually on a high level, in high-level cons consultations with the rest of the board in there as well. So Major Mouse testing program crowdfunded a lot of their, it's, it's so cool, I love, I love these guys, they've got such cool pictures all over their website. So they believe in doing as many animal trials as possible, but not just doing research, but at, like not just doing, you know, uh, data analytics or anything like that, but trying as many things as possible. And their big focus is on senolytics. Okay, so senolytics remove senescent cells. So basically the cell has a few different stages of its life cycle it can be in. When it enters a stage called G0, it's said to be in senescence. It doesn't divide anymore. It doesn't really do much. But a lot of this study has found that there can be problems even when it's just sitting there, where it starts to submit toxins and, and start to change the cells around it. And clearing these cells out can extend your lifespan. So I think this is a great thing that there's all these different avenues that people are pursuing. The big ones though would definitely be the telomerase. Everything else is, is maybe like complementary to that. 
Okay, so basically what they do, one of the cool things is they repurpose existing drugs. So if something's already FDA approved, you can find an off-target thing for it to attack. And if you do that, because it's already been approved for human use, you can just release it straight away. So like uh, Viagra was probably the most well-known one of those. They used it to treat a heart condition and then they said, oh, it's not actually that good at treating the heart condition, but it, was, it got through the FDA approvals and then no one wanted to give back their medication when they tried to recall it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, F having FDA drugs that are already approved is a really quick way of, of doing this and, and they know that too. Focus on Senolytics, they are doing some other things, but that's a big one. And they just crowdfunded about $60,000, which is great to see them looking at non-traditional models of funding. We were talking, um, Ilya was talking before about the public fund science. So there's a responsibility to like raise the profile. But if you crowdfund, you can just go and ask the public directly, is this something you're interested in? Because you might, you might all be interested in life extension, even if half of Australia is, even though the public fund it, the public still don't decide what gets, what gets grants. It's an, it's an independent research body, the ARC and the NHMRC. This way you can just fund stuff directly. Blockchain's even better. Okay, Calico. I hadn't actually read too much about Calico before today. By the way, I'm not an expert in life extension, as you can probably tell, but I am uh, pretty good with biology. So I went and said, oh, what, what are Calico up to? This is Google's answer to life extension research. I was actually really disappointed. So basically, they've, they've licensed a whole heap of technology. They have big focus on data sciences. There's no one really that like, interesting on their team. They've got quite a small team and they've got a lot of job ads asking for people to come in. Lots of collaboration, no new insight. Aubrey de Grey famously criticised them because he says we already thoroughly understand the causes of ageing. It's not research time, it's development time. It's time to build products. So that's, that's basically like his big critique of it. And he also critiques the direction in which they went because they, they're not looking at any currently understood versions of ageing. They want to find something else but he thinks that a lot of their money they've got like you know hundreds of millions of dollars approaching billions of dollars for this approaching a billion dollars but he says they're just going to replicate all the research that we've already found because we have really strong evidence for the causes of aging okay editas is george church's independent program so he's actually looking at doing uh, CRISPR editing of humans, not just for life extension, but for other things like cystic fibrosis as well. I'm not going to cover it heaps. Basically, he reckons stage one trials in one to two years, not life extension exclusive. Yeah. Okay. Sense. So Sense is Aubrey de Grey's company. These guys are absolutely off the hook. So Aubrey de Grey very, probably wrote one of the first modern or contemporary books on life extension, which was mitochondrial theory of aging. And he has a background in computer science. And he's loaded. I'm actually trying to channel my inner Audrey Gray today. I didn't shave, took my hair out. So his idea is that aging is actually caused by the powerhouses of your cell, the mitochondria aging. And there's a lot of evidence to support this. And he, he wants to copy the genome and then at different points throughout your life, put those genes back into the mitochondria. I think it's, it's a brilliant approach. He's also with OpenSense funded pretty much every single different approach you can have for aging. So if he's criticizing Calico, it's wise for them to listen. He's got no money and delivers heaps of research, heaps of results. Google have tons of money to chuck in and they've pretty much done nothing. And this is my final company I'm going to talk about and then we'll just go to a conclusion. So Human Longevity Inc. is Craig Venter. Does anyone know this guy? Yeah, so we sequenced a human genome in the year 2000. It was his genome we sequenced. He's, he's, he's pretty fun. He, he convinced the government to give him $2 million to buy a yacht and sail around the world collecting DNA from the oceans. 
famously tried to bang most of the scientists' wives when he was parked in Sydney Harbour. <laughs> um, he's like a bit of a rock star geneticist. He wants to send a sequencer to Mars. And he's probably, yeah, in, in genomics, he's, he's the guy. So he's, he's set up um, HLI. HLI is basically like, it's, it's just sequencing. That's all he does, but he does it really well. So he's setting up the biggest sequencing facility in the world. When it's built, the initial lab will be able to sequence 40,000 human genomes in a year. And with, at scale, he hopes to bring that up to 100,000 per year. And he thinks from this much data, you can answer some of the questions that we haven't answered yet with life extension. He's also doing the microbiome because he says uh, they think that this will be involved somehow because there's more of these cells in your body than human cells. And also understanding how stem cells differentiate into the different types of cells you have in your body in what he classifies normal aging. So if we can monitor everything that goes on as they divide, we can undo it. He's got some basic data tools up online. They don't have any like physical products like drugs or things that you can take now. But I think that this, this is probably the most promising project at the moment to facilitate other, uh, other avenues of life extension tech. Okay, future. So I got really excited today. I hadn't looked into BioViva and Telesite before today. And then when I was reading, I went through and read all the papers and, and figured out how they did what they did. And they basically just took the mouse trial and stuck it in humans. So I gave a call to the Office of Gene Technology Regulator this afternoon, and they said that you could actually manufacture that in BioFoundry. So any member of the public in Australia could come into our lab and replicate that if they weren't worried about... Uh, they wouldn't, legally, they would not be able to give it to themselves. You would need written, uh, exp express written approval from the OGTR, but you could manufacture it here. There are skills in our community that could do it. And all it needs is an institutional biosafety committee that we're setting up at the moment to tick it off. I reckon there's actually a few different ways you can approach this. Like, like your, your body's really, really good at fixing broken things. When we're looking at like, things like bioprinters, we don't print with any high resolution. We just chuck stem cells in, but make the matrix explain what it needs to be. And it can kind of generally work it out from, from there. But this hasn't been done properly yet. Like we're, we're just on the first steps of doing things like replacement hearts. But you know, every single day I see something new about a new way of getting the cells to organize into capillaries. But you know, we're not walking around with bioprinted hearts yet. But I, th I, think, I think it's, for most things, it's definitely possible. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 850 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.